Welcome back to the Learning Curve podcast. I am your co-host today, Alicia Thomas-Hersey, and I am joined with my new friend, Charlie Tiepo. How are you? Good, Alicia. I'm happier that I'm here with you, and uh, I'm looking forward to this. Same here. It's going to be a very interesting conversation today. So, of course, before we get into that, it's time for our stories of the week. And, Charlie, I'll go first. Go for um, it. I really enjoyed reading this interview on Education Next between Frederick Hess and Nina Reese. As we know, Nina Reese is the outgoing president of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. And she's a guest on Learning Curve. Exactly, was uh, Mm -hmm. our guest recently. And so I'm liking these interviews that she's doing and we're learning a lot. As a former legislator, you know, I did a lot of work in the charter school space. And so I learned a lot from this interview. And so a couple of important things I think to point out Number one, she was very frank about kind of the politics of charter schools, where we are. One of the most important things I think she pointed out was all the research that's been done with Credo, that while charter schools are certainly outperforming their traditional public schools where they exist, as a whole, they're not necessarily outperforming traditional public schools across the country. And I think it's important to say that One of the things that's interesting to me in this charter school movement and conversation is that I think some people expected charter schools to come in and like be all things to all people and knock it out of the box when it comes to student achievement in every area. And certainly we want that to be the goal. But she also points out something I think very, very important, which is this marriage that she calls between the charter school movement and the accountability movement has really stifled innovation in the charter school space. And if we think back to the 90s, when this conversation started and we wanted to see more innovation in the traditional public school space, I think we thought charters were going to be the entity that helped to do that. But her point is we've been so focused on student achievement And yes, taking on students just like the traditional public school system, where they are behind in many ways, that charters have not been able to focus on innovation. And so I think this interview was so honest. I thought it was spectacular. And the title of it is very good, right? Honestly assess your strengths and limitations. So I think any good leader, whether you're leaving the job or just getting into it, if you're in the middle of the job, you have to take a moment to honestly assess your strengths and your limitations. And so the final thing that she talks about is, you know, what's the advice that she'd give to those who are still in the charter space, still doing this work? And she says something that we all know that we should be doing, but I'm not sure we do it well, which is coalition building, to find partners who agree with us, who understand the need to have public school choice, no matter what it looks like, if it's a charter, if it, and these are my words, but charter, magnet, traditional, transferring within the district, whatever it is that you need coalitions and people who understand the values of the charter school space and leveling the playing field and what it is that we're trying to do. And I've always believed that no matter what your issue is, if you're a one issue person, for me, I'm education, but it's also important to me to show up with other coalitions for things that I believe in, like voting rights, as an example. And so this notion that we have to do a better job of coalition building is so important, so powerful, great article. I think Nina's work is going to be missed, and I hope that she'll stay involved in the movement and keep having these really important conversations as we move forward in the charter school space. 
Well, you know, Alicia, the thing that you bring up that really resonates with me as someone who's been involved with charters for a long time is Nina's comment about how charters have, for a variety of reasons, not always encouraged innovation. Because I think in Massachusetts, that has certainly always been the case. And at least here, it's been two things. One has been exactly what you say. You know, obviously, continuing to have strong academic outcomes is often politically an existential issue for these schools. So uh, the basis for which they get renewed, right? Right. Exactly. So they're not always encouraged to take chances, to take risks. You know, the other thing is, at least here, and it may not be this way everywhere, but boy, they were quickly almost pigeonholed into this by an ever sort of increasing set of regulations around them as they became more and more controversial. But it's a very interesting point and certainly one that resonates with me as I think about charters. Absolutely. But I do hope that as we move forward, that there is more conversation about innovation and we think about those regulations that we put in place because we need it in public education. We do. And, you know, here in Massachusetts, in fact, it became part of the law that the law became that essentially to have a charter school above what was a much older cap on the number of them, it had to be a school run by a proven provider, you know, Mm -hmm. which itself just puts a lid on innovation. So exactly. uh, But you're right. Very interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff. So what do you have? Well, I am going to talk about a piece on PBS about the shortage of special education teachers. And so I have to admit right up front, I'm the parent of two special education students. So this certainly uh, is one that I'm always wanting to talk about. So I live in a suburban community that was at the time when my kids were in school and we moved here, you know, frankly, more affluent than we could afford, you know, but that's, that was where we needed to be to get the services that our kids needed. And I think that a lot of people are forced to make that choice. But this particular piece was about the quality of teachers in the environment of having a shortage of special education teachers. And I'll tell you, the short answer to that, from my experience, is that they ranged from horrendous to miraculous. My daughter, in particular, had a terrible special education teacher who was really the biggest reason why we were forced to get an out-of-district placement and all the hiring of advocates and lawyers and people you can't afford that that goes along with that. But on the other hand, several years later, after years of, of making more a lot of progress, my daughter decided, very courageously, I thought, that she was going to come back and do her senior year at the local high school. Now, it's hard enough to do your senior year, come back for one year when you've been away for years. And I think the fact that it was in the middle of the pandemic makes it even, you know, made it even harder. But I have to say, in this case, that ended up being very successful, largely because of the work by a team of special educators that really were nothing short of miraculous. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they were incredible, I'm happy to say, and thankful. So when it comes to this issue of how do we solve this shortage, one of the answers here is, you know, what things that would be probably common sense in the non-education world. Look, teaching is hard. Uh, I I spent three and a half years as an adjunct doing it at the college level. And to do it well, it became like an almost like a second full-time job. Mm -hmm. And I suspect very strongly that being a K through 12 teacher is probably harder than that. But the fact is that I think being a special education teacher is harder still. I mean, that is a job 
I know what it's been like to parent two special needs students. I mean, for people who can do that all day, that is an unbelievably difficult job. And when you add up the, the fact of how difficult it is with the fact that there's a shortage, I think that in the real world, one of the answers would be we need to pay these people more. Yes. And, you know, but that sort of differential pay it remains a very high wall to scale. And I just hope that maybe one of these days we'll be able to chip away at it in a way that will help our students, in this case, some of our neediest students. So that's my thought on that issue. Agreed. I couldn't agree with you more. I, too, in our family, we have two who have IEPs and, you yeah. know, all of the kids are different. All of them need things different, need yeah. different resources. And to your point, when I was superintendent, one of my long-term goals, which I never got a chance to get around to, was to train all of the teachers, including the general ed teachers, in special education because the expertise that special education teachers have is phenomenal. And frankly, all of the students could benefit from it. But to your point, the work that specifically special education teachers do, I think, is God's work. Oh, my God, um, yes. You know, given the range of challenges that students present within classrooms. So this shortage issue is a very serious one, as you pointed out, and it's across the country. And it's something that we have to address, number one, because the students need it. And number two, you want to make sure that you're in compliance with federal law. Yes, right. Exactly. So, exactly. Thank you for that story, Charlie. I think we're going to have a great show today. And so coming up, we are going to have Dr. Matias von Davier, who is the director of the TIMS International Test. We'll be right back. Dr. Matias von Davier is the J. Donald Monin S.J. Professor in Education at the Lynch School of Education and Human Development at Boston College, and also serves as Executive Director of the Thames and Pearls International Study Center. Prior to joining the faculty at BC, he held the Distinguished Research Scientist position at the National Board of Medical Examiners in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was a senior research director in the Research and Development Division at Educational Testing Service, also known as ETS, and co-director of the Center for Global Assessment at ETS, leading psychometric research and operational analyses of international large-scale assessments conducted by the center. He earned his PhD in psychology from the University of Kiel, Germany, specializing in psychometrics. Welcome to the show, Dr. Von Davier. It's wonderful to have you. I'm going to jump right in and ask the first question. So as your bio notes, you're a German-educated psychometrician and researcher. So can you talk with our listeners about your background and formative educational experiences, how they shaped your work directing Tim's and Pearls and teaching education policy at Boston College? Sure. Thank you very much for the invitation and for your question. My background at least explains my accent, of course. <laughs> also, why I will be a little bit careful to talk a lot about countries I didn't really grow up in. So I teach at Boston College mainly in psychometrics-related issues. So we do a lot around methodology and quantitative methods. And I will really focus also on these types of issues in my responses, naturally, even though Educational policy, of course, gets a lot of information from Tims and Pearls, but I will talk about this in the context of our work in collecting and analyzing the data for Tims and Pearls in the international setting. But more directly to your question, so my education includes 
college level mathematics, computer sciences and psychology. I have my PhD was in quantitative methods and psychology. And I started to work at the Institute for Science Education while TIMS 1995 was going on. I didn't know about it or not much about it back then. And did my PhD there. Since 1997, I've been mainly in the U.S. Uh, I've been working at the Educational Testing Service in Princeton, New Jersey, pretty much since 1997 and 2000 continuously, first as a research scientist and then ending up as a senior research director at ETS in the Center for Global Assessment and the Center for Statistical Theory and Practice and a few other places. And I've been working on NAEP, on IAC, which is the adult assessment by OECD, later on PISA. And I've been working pretty much all the time on Tims and Pearls as the consultant to Boston College. So I have a long-standing relationship with Boston College, advising them on all kinds of statistical and psychometric analyses that they had to do. And then three years ago, I came to Boston College to lead the Tims and Pearls International Study Center. And right now we're working on Pearls 26, TIMS 23, and very soon, hopefully very quickly, also on TIMS 27, because the cycle never ends. So right. these are all cyclical assessments and some other related projects. So we have a really great staff there. They're outstanding professionals, and we're also lucky enough to get a lot of graduate students and PhD students who work with us in the center. Very fascinating. Thank you for that. And so psychometrics and standardized test development are often hotly contested topics in K-12 education. Hopefully you would agree with that. And so could you explain what psychometrics is and how testing companies employ a wide variety of experts in this field to produce standardized tests that are both statistically valid and a fair way to measure student learning? Yes, certainly happy to answer this. I think it's Hotly contested, I fully agree with that, but also often not well understood, I guess. Psychometrics is the study of how we can quantify individual differences in a way that is fair, that treats everybody the same regardless of background, reliable, but it gives you nearly the same or almost the same results if you would redo the test, and valid so that it actually measures what it's supposed to measure and not just some randomly related other properties. In some ways, psychometrics has similarities, and I say that also in my lectures, to sports ranking systems, whether you are ranking tennis players, chess masters, baseball teams, other types of players, even in massive online computer games, you find very similar methods applied. And if you look at that, if you look at tennis rankings, chess rankings, other types of sports, competitive sports, there is much less of being hotly contested to be heard, and they apply almost the same methods. So there's a lot of mathematics involved. Uh, scores are derived in scientifically rigorous and defensible ways. But of course, we have to make sure that we really measure what we want to measure. So there's the mathematics alone or the statistics alone doesn't help. It doesn't do the full 100% of the job, I should say. It can only go so far. So we need content experts. We need experts in assessment, in sampling, also fairness of assessment in content areas, expert in how to assess content and context variables, etc. So it goes way beyond just the administering a test. 
Also, I need to point out Terms and Pearls do not give scores to individual students. We describe countries or groups within countries. And that involves many more steps that I really can talk here in full detail, but I'm very happy to talk a lot about this, and I usually do. We also take care very carefully to make sure that we cover the curricula that are being taught in the countries and talk a lot with countries about what is being taught and how it can be reflected in our assessments. A lot goes into this, and it's important for us to know that as we think about the reliability of these assessments. So thank you for that. So since 1957, when the Soviet Union successfully launched Sputnik 1, there's often been a strong relationship between education policy, STEM, and military or space applications. Can you talk about how education policy has gradually transitioned its focus to economic competition as well as democratizing equality of educational opportunity? Very interesting question. So, and I was reminded that my alma mater, the University of Kiel in Germany, they actually started the Institute for Science Education exactly because of Sputnik, just shortly after this historic event in 1957. I think the Institute <laughs> started in 1958, actually. <laughs> but I think there's, of course, a push to look at education also in terms of economic outcomes. However, Gems and Pearls keep the educational focus and keep the focus on what is being taught in schools, what are countries agreeing on in terms of content. So we really look at the curricula. I mentioned that in the answer to my last question. We do this work for not an economic organization like some other assessments. We do this work for the International Association for the Evaluation of Educational Achievement, the IEA, and they have a clear educational focus, thinking about how to improve education worldwide. This organization goes back to 1958, has legal status since 1967, and has made numerous contributions and grew the field of international large-scale assessment before actually these more economic-focused assessments. TIMS itself started in 95, but really goes back to earlier mathematics and science studies, so the first and second mathematics and science studies. For example, I, and I will close with this one, we do not only test students in terms of how well they do in math and science or reading for pearls. We also gather and collect a lot of context variables systematically. Mm -hmm. Our last report that you will find online at the TIMS and Pearls website, for example, focused on student well-being based on the PEARLS 2021 data. PEARLS is the reading assessment that essentially is the other big assessment in our center. Thank you. Going back to a nation at risk in 1983 in the U.S. and internationally, there's been growing knowledge and data about the relationship between K-12 educational attainment and the global competitiveness among nations. Could you talk about the global education data landscape and how international testing like TIMS have greatly expanded our understanding of education performance across the world? Yeah, sure. So if you allow me, I would stay with the international level because many of these things really also apply to not only the US, but also the other nations. So we really want to make sure that we do not prescribe any particular policy. We would like to provide information to policymakers but don't really want to get into the way of what they then do based on a further analysis. So we provide one 
perspective on the role of education on educational outcomes, policymakers take a lot more information into account and then come up with policies. Of course, I want to admit, and it's a very important finding that we find over and over, that economic strength and educational outcomes, achievement measures, terms and pearls and other assessments, they do correlate at the country level. So you will see economically stronger countries will tend to be higher scoring than economically more challenged countries or developing countries or countries that are at the threshold, low and middle income countries. The same is true not only for economy, but also for the transparency index that talks about how transparent government is, how transparent the society is, how many problems there are. So even there, it's a very high relationship, more transparent society according to these kinds of criteria are, the higher tend to be the average achievement in that country. However, you can also argue this is like the famous chicken and egg problem. We need well-educated children and the next generation to value what can be done in a country to improve society, to improve economic outcomes, to improve equity and fairness, to be able to do this. At the same time, we want well-educated children. We need resources. So that also is easier than for countries that actually can provide more resources to education. So it's not an easy world to live in, but we really have to try to understand these complex relationships. All right, Professor Mondavia, this is Charlie Chippio here. Thank you so much for joining us. So the COVID-19 pandemic has heightened concerns about the state of education in the United States and internationally. Based on the data, can you talk a little bit about educational performance among high-performing countries, low-performing countries, and how the U.S. compares on some global measures? Yeah, of course, this was a very frightening and tough time for everybody. And we know and we can't ignore the effects the pandemic had on pretty much everybody in the world and also on education systems. In the short term, we saw a lot of negative effects and we also were afraid that this big experiment, online education, wouldn't work so well. And we see fallout from that, of course. So children couldn't go to school. Parents had to make space and time for having their students, their children sitting as students at home all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. International assessments felt these effects as way. Well. Either we had to postpone or we had some countries who had to postpone other assessments fully postponed, often by a full year. And we, in particular, had to essentially extend the testing period, and, and that also had some adverse effects, of course. So for that reason, it's also not so easy to talk about the fallout and how to measure this. There's another reason, and I just want to make this as a very simple kind of comparison. We don't really have a before and after test. We didn't know COVID was coming, right? so we couldn't really test students before and after COVID. And also, we didn't have any countries that were unaffected. There were maybe somewhat less affected, but everybody was affected to some extent. And there were some, of course, yeah, ideas about how long it would take. I think we are still learning here. There was a relatively recent article on December 13, I think, in the New York Times that pointed out some quite surprising more recent results, but doesn't fully fit. To this narrative of sustained long term learning loss. So, some things I think we are on a rebound. Some people think that at least. And I think we need to make sure we carefully monitor and we have to make sure that we have 
yeah, take education seriously. But in the end, I'm an optimist. I think while COVID was incredibly tough and too many lives, we lost too many opportunities to interact and to learn. I think really that education is resilient and is so in many countries. So I really have high regard for all the teachers and all the school administrators who, who did an incredible job trying to do the best they could under the circumstances. It's funny, I listened to your response to the question, and one of the things that strikes me is that we really, this continues to be a moving target. You know, as we continue to get more data on the impact and how long lasting it is and all those kind of things, we keep having to kind of adjust on the fly based on what we're learning. Yep. So you grew up abroad and through your professional work, travels, research, you've had the opportunity to see how other countries, particularly some higher performing countries in East Asia, Russia, Germany, prepare their students to succeed in STEM. Could you discuss what Tim's data from other countries tells us about teaching math and science and what perhaps American K-12 education policymakers might want to learn from or emulate? Yeah, that's a very tricky question, even though it sounds that this is exactly what these types of assessments are built for. And it's tricky for a variety of reasons. So we look at between country comparisons. How well do they do? We have, of course, the list of countries, the average achievement and everything. But we also look at systems level information that goes beyond the pure just how well are they doing on average. Right. We have measures of how wide the range is of achievement within a country, so the variance, the variability of those scores. We have a lot about context data, and we also have publications that talk about systems-level information. So we as researchers are very careful when it comes to trying to emulate other systems. There has been a lot of, I would say, Tim's and maybe PISA tourism in the early cycles of those assessments. So there were a few countries that were high on the list. And then policymakers from all kinds of other countries went there for professional meetings and information sessions. And I think everybody learned who was there that they cannot simply transplant those findings because they have to go deeper. They have to learn a lot more about what is going on in the system what does the population look like, for example, uh, in terms of disadvantaged groups? As you described this, I'm thinking about the sort of frenzy there was for a time about everybody going to Finland, finding out that, well, there's a whole lot there that makes it completely different, you know, or not, and as you say, not necessarily something you can just copy. Exactly. And I think just because of that, I think it's really a, a smart move, of course, to get informed one of the publications that we have is the so-called TIMS encyclopedia, where we have country-level systems information where countries can look what other countries are doing. There's, of course, a lot more information out there, but this is our little contribution to that. And then the other point is really, we really need to look deeper. It's not only the average achievement and then looking what they do in education. We also need to look at how the country is set up. So what kind of training do teachers go through? What kind of supports do parents get? What happens in education policy there at a really deep level? How different are school systems? Are they driven centrally? There are so many different school systems out there. And to simply transplant something 
say a centralized school system cannot be transplanted to a system with federal states. So it's a very tricky question, but a very interesting one. And I can just yeah suggest to look into all the different publications where you find information about the different countries. Right. All right. Well, finally, international members like Tim's highlight the relationship between education, skills, and innovation. Can you talk about the wider learning loss, educational impact, and financial implications that the COVID pandemic has had on global K-12 education and on competition between nations? Yeah, I would like to say a lot about this, but I would also like to go back to a previous point. So there is certainly learning loss, but we also don't know the extent of the learning loss, just because we don't have this before and direct before and after measures. Yes. We see on average that many, many countries in the last two bigger assessments showed a decline somewhat. But we also saw that some countries maybe saw less decline compared to other countries. The Secretary of Education actually pointed that out on December 5th, 23, right now. He said, here's the bottom line, at an extremely tough time in education, the United States moved up in the world rankings in reading, math, and science, all three categories, these are measures, while unfortunately many other countries saw declines. So everybody went down, but the U.S. less than other countries, and actually in two domains, almost not at all. So in reading and science, there was very little change. So I would say some countries might be more resilient. Some countries might have been better prepared. We don't know exactly what went on. This is why within country studies are so important. We, For example, in our last assessment, we had questions about COVID, of course, because we collected during and after COVID. But the responses were so diverse that we are going to publish the responses just as they are. We are not trying to somehow group them or make statements about, okay, this is a good approach, this is not so much a good approach, because there are so many different ways, there are so many different school systems. So I don't want you to feel discouraged by this, but it's something you really need within country studies. It's very hard to generalize because every country had a different approach to how they handled COVID, whether right. it was hybrid, that schools were open for half-size classrooms and some students stayed home, others were in class, some other countries had full closings by region, some others tried to stay in class. So you really described it so wisely as a moving target. We still learn, but we can't just say, okay, this can be transplanted. This is what we learned about COVID. This worked in that country. So for the next pandemic, we know what to do. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not that easy. Yeah. You know, it's funny, as you mentioned that, I'm thinking what comes to mind is two neighboring countries, Norway and Sweden, for example, who approached the pandemic so differently in terms of the policy responses to it. So that is certainly a very good point. This was great, Professor Van Davier. I really appreciate your being here. I suspect there are some of us here who might want to get you back to have you talk to us about sports rankings, <laughs> but, that's a, <laughs> <love> that. <laughs> but that's a different question for a different day. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Great conversation today. Thank you for the invitation. It was really nice.
Well, that was a great interview. Really That's enjoyed great. that. And next, I am going to read the Tweet of the Week, which is from the U.S. Holocaust Museum. In honor of International Holocaust Remembrance Day, Holocaust survivor and museum volunteer Ruth Cohen reflects on her family and urges us to learn from history and take action against anti-Semitism today. So you can go to the U.S. Holocaust Museum's Twitter feed on January 26th and see that. And with that, I will say once again, Alicia, it is just an absolute pleasure to get to do the learning curve with you. So thank you very much. And I hope we'll get to do it again soon. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to next week's episode. We will have Professor Robert Norell. He is a chair of excellence in American history at the University of Tennessee and the author of Up From History, The Life of Booker T. Washington. See you next time.